Welcome back, everyone, to a highly anticipated episode with a very hilarious and fantastic guest. He is the greatest troll on the R Butcoin subreddit. He is the professor of Bitcoin. And rather than talk about our next guest, I'm just going to share with you all a wonderful uh, little bit of um, knowledge that he uh, wrote and posted on his website. This is how I plan to make some easy money. Method A. I ask a guy to show me a $50 bill. I grab the bill and I run. Evaluation of Method A. Advantages. I made $50. Disadvantages. Victim shouts thief, calls the police, they get me, and I go to jail. Not good. Forget Method A. Method B. I ask 10 people to form a circle, each holding a $50 bill. I tell each person to pass his bill to the next guy to his right, slowly at first, but gradually quickening. I show them, mathematically, that at any moment, the sum that each one had, plus everything that he received from his neighbor to the left, is always more than what he had to give to his neighbor on the right so that everyone, in the end, wins. I give the example by taking the bill from my left neighbor and giving it to the right neighbor. Like this, see? I tell them. Soon the 11 of us are smoothly passing 10 bills around. A passerby asks, may I join too? Sure, get a $50 bill and enter the circle, I tell him. If I contribute two bills, will I get twice the profit? He asks, well, of course. He calls his two of his friends, who call others, and so on. Soon, we are 21 people, circulating 30 bills. Everybody notices that the method is working. Each one now must grab another bill from his left neighbor before he has a chance to give his bill to the right neighbor. A few minutes later, I stop for a moment to pick up the pen that I dropped on the floor, and while doing so, I discreetly pocket the bill that left my left neighbor just handed me. And I immediately resume the play. With the bills in motion, no one can count them and notice that now there are only 29 going around. No, wait. That guy from across the circle is angrily staring at my pocket. He noticed my trick. I'm done. But instead of blowing the whistle, the scoundrel winks at me, pauses for a moment to blow his nose, discreetly pockets the bill from left, and goes on playing. Oh, thank God. But I'd better play it safe. I tell everyone, sorry folks, I must pick up my turtle at the gym. You carry on without me. And I walk on, holding high my bill that I just got from left. That scoundrel does the same. The other 19 guys thank me for the great opportunity and keep on passing the remaining 26 bills around, already thinking on how they will spend their profit. Evaluation of Method B. Advantages. I made $100. Disadvantages. I don't know yet. Let's see how this whole Bitcoin thing works out. <laughs> Oh, God. Oh, that's so good.
Professor Stolfi, thank you very much for joining me today. How, how are you? Well, I'm fine. I'm as good as one can be after being one year locked up at home, but <laughs> otherwise we are fine. Excellent. I've heard a lot about you. I've listened to a lot of your work. I think what I enjoyed most is not, not just your posts and comments on our Butcoin and on Reddit in general, but in particular, I loved your interview on the Bitcoin Uncensored podcast in October of 2016. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was fun. <laughs> Thank you, Bell. Thanks for, for your comments. But that interview was fun. I think it is one of the podcasts I enjoyed the most. You play several different roles in cryptocurrency because cryptocurrency isn't just one discipline. It's a kind of intersection of finance and computer science. You're a professor uh, of computer science uh, in Brazil, but you inevitably have to talk about finance and fraud. Uh, how do you balance, you know, discussing cryptocurrency, you know, Bitcoin, blockchain, and how does that feel? Well, my knowledge of economics and finance uh, is practically all I, I learned since 2014 when I started following Bitcoin. Before that, I was a typical computer nerd who knows, I think we can say, a negative knowledge of economics. He believes many things that are not true. <laughs> like inflation is bad. We should have a mon money without inflation. That would be good. That, that, that's something that well, I learned since then. Just by watching Bitcoin and by uh, nothing else, that that's not true. I mean, if currencies without inflation, as economists I would say all the time, I mean, they, they, they are not good money because people will hoard them uh, and that will uh, make the price rise and that will make people hoard them even more. And then the currency will just uh, stop working as money because of volatility and things like that. I just had a in an interview with Matthew Ranger, who is a, a master's degree in economics. And he talked at length about the issues with, with currencies, why deflation is bad, why small amounts of predictable inflation is ideal. Mm -hmm. And you've spoken about this for, for quite a while. Why are cryptocurrencies bad as currency? The currencies themselves, since they are deflationary, or they are all, all of them are ever capital issuance because that's what makes them valuable for gamblers investors, the, the traders, whatever, right? So um, I think there was an attempt in, in 2014, I remember there was, a, I think it was Frankencoin, uh, tried to do a, an inflationary coin, which was supposed then to be stable because it was inflationary instead of deflationary. <laughs> but uh, that coin apparently didn't succeed because it is not a tempting investment. So the fact that uh, cryptocurrencies are created and promoted as investment, not as uh, money, makes uh, their value extremely volatile. You cannot use as money something that changes 10% value when someone tweets two emojis, <laughs> like, like what happened recently with Elon Musk, right? Or, or that uh, That's right. rises 30%, or that increases 10% in value when, when something else is stupid happened. Both the, the currency dropping value or, or, or increasing in value are bad for commerce because if the currency drops, then people who have, who have money to receive, receive less, and uh, if the currency goes up, then people have to pay. Who have debt, they, they will have to pay more. So that's uh, the reason why, I mean, there is practically 
no uh, legal commerce going on with Bitcoin in spite of uh, 12 years of, well, 10 years of strenuous attempts to promote it as such. So the crux of your uh, hilarious sort of exchange with Krista Rose and Junseth in, in 2016 was that, you know, here were two young guys out of Florida and they loved to, to buy drugs online. And in their mind, that was a good enough use case. In, in 2016, transaction fees were not yet obviously as bad as they were in 2017 and, and, and in the present. And a lot of people were introduced to Bitcoin, not from any sort of speculative approach, but just that there's a use case for engaging in activity that the government says is bad. So essentially illegal activities. How has your perspective changed on that sort of thesis about uh, Bitcoin's non-speculative utility? Cryptocurrencies in general are still uh, very useful for criminals. Uh, I mean, since then we have seen the epidemic of ransomware, which uh, only exists because there is now this uh, way that uh, lets uh, the ransomware hackers receive the the ransom uh, without exposing themselves in a way that cannot be cancelled or cannot be uh, reversed. And previously, there were um, sporadic attempts at ransomware, but they had to use things like gift cards or, or um, payment processors. And all of those can be uh, frozen and uh, reversed if the scammers, if the hackers don't act quickly to launder that money. Uh, Bitcoin, they don't have to worry. I mean, once they have received the ransom, it can sit there in the blockchain for years until they think that it is very safe. Uh, or they found a way to, to, to launder it. I've seen claims that drug traffic, drug dealers are switching to Monero and other coins that are harder to trace. Uh, I think there is still a lot of illegal traffic, uh, illegal commerce going on with Bitcoin because it is simply the most accepted currency and therefore it's the, the one that is easier to launder. I think this is a great place to start because a lot of your criticism of Bitcoin is around the Ponzi-like nature of cryptocurrencies and the investment philosophies that we hear from the cryptocurrency community. But in this particular instance, in the use case of criminal money transfer, for for example, the purchase of drugs online in the Silk Road, this is the one area where you and I, I think, can both agree there's a non-speculative use case. And and, and I think that might be the only one that you've found. Is that fair to say? Yes, I think so. In fact, I mean, the only two real problems with cryptocurrency are those that they are an ideal tool for criminals and that they are the vehicle for this uh, huge Ponzi, I think soon to be the largest Ponzi scheme in history. We'll get to Tether before the end of this podcast. There's something important about non-speculative use cases, which I think is very hard to penetrate the the mind of, of people into the cryptocurrency space. I wanted to start by referring to some of your work, which was essentially to write letters to the SEC. Specifically, when the SEC asked for comments, asked the public in general for comments on proposals to start Bitcoin ETFs, I sent my opinion, like 10,000 other Bitcoiners sent, which was in the form of a long letter. In your 2016 letter to the SEC on the topic of a Bitcoin ETF being approved in the United States, you explain how Bitcoin appears to be like virtual money in a bank account. However, you write that there are important differences. 
a bank is bound by contract and by law to transfer the amount stated in that ledger to other banks or to cash if the client requests it, and the government is morally obliged to preserve the purchase value of that cash. Can you flesh out fundamentally what makes Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies different than, and let's take an example, a stock. What makes them fundamentally different than stocks? Now we are talking about investment. Stocks, they are, it is a certificate of property of a fraction of a company. Bound by, and there are laws and contracts that ensure that when you own, own that token in the um, NISC database, you are actually owning that slice of the company. You have legal rights over that. And the company is usually created because it expects that to take money from investors in order to set up its business, but then it expects to get uh, revenue from selling services or products to clients, not to investors. Uh, those clients eventually will uh, give the company more money than what it received from investors. And since every profit that the company makes belongs to the investors, the investors as a whole, all of them, will get more profit out of it. And that has been the case, in, I mean, for 200 years. That's why people who know, really know what they are doing when they invest, they invest in stock. Of course, it is not every stock that will do that. You have to look at the company and look at the market and understand the market in order to know whether it's likely that this company will make profit in the future. Whereas in cryptocurrency, there is a, no revenue stream that comes in. There is nothing except money that investors put into the game. And that money is not stored anywhere. Every time someone invests in Bitcoin, that money goes to an earlier investor or to the miners. There is no bank account where the cash reserves of Bitcoin are stored. That's the characteristic of a Ponzi. When, when people want to withdraw, they have make a big profit. But that profit comes entirely from money that other investors are putting in. So on the world, investors only lose money because um, there is no source of money that comes in. There is a big drain of money, which is what goes to the miners. Today, it is about, I don't know, 30, 30 million dollars a day. It should be about 30 million dollars a day. That's right. I have here a quarter million US dollars per block, which is $36 million per day. Mm -hmm. And again, if there are slow blocks, then it's less, but on average, it's 144. It seems that the hash rate has dropped by, by 60-70% because China is cracking down on miners' waste electric energy that is not supposed to be surplus. <laughs> Right, and uh, that means that the block the block rate must be uh, once every thirty minutes instead of once every uh, ten minutes, uh, which means that there are only I don't know four hundred, three hundred coins mined per day instead of nine hundred, which means that the miners are now receiving uh, maybe ten million dollars a day or something like that. But uh, but uh, that will soon be corrected once uh, once the difficulty gets adjusted. Uh, then even if the, those miners that went offline are, do not come back online, the miners as a whole will go back to receiving uh, $30 million a day. In your appearances in 2016 and then later in 2018, for example, you had an interesting debate with Daniel Kravitz, I believe, who argued uh, against you. You argued that Bitcoin is a scam. In the beginning of this year or at the end of last year, you were on the Blockchain Debate podcast. Again, you were debating that Bitcoin behaves like a Ponzi, that it's a scam. One thing I notice is that you, you're saying the same thing for, for quite a few years, that no money is coming from non-speculative points 
it's just the next person that's buying it. And at the same time, it appears to be this, this simple flow of money that you're trying to explain is evading the intellectual capacities of almost anyone you talk to. I regularly hear people, when they're talking to you, have an inability to see how Bitcoin is different than a stock in Amazon, for example. Why do you think people struggle to connect the dots the way you have? I think it was uh, Upton Sinclair who said that, uh, well, it's very hard to make someone understand something if their salary depends on them not understanding. I think that explains a lot of uh, the difficulty that Bitcoin investors have. Are you referring to people outside of the Bitcoin community? I think it's it's all of us. It's it, Well, it's not everyone. And this is another point that you bring up, which is that a lot of your colleagues, for example, and people in the computer science or finance fields broadly, just dismiss Bitcoin. They don't vocalize their opinion like like you do. But the people that are in the crypto space struggle mightily to understand what is and isn't a Ponzi. Uh, for example, you had a debate with Lynn Alden, I believe. Mm -hmm. And she made the point during this debate that the way you've defined Ponzi is so broad that everything is a Ponzi, according to your definition. The SEC has a definition of Ponzi scheme that is actually more broad, broader than mine because, uh, I mean, uh, they make the same points except that they don't require the organizers to take out money. They leave that out. I mean, maybe they assume that, well, <laughs> obviously that has to be the case. But uh, basically, they make it exactly the same point. On the other hand, I mean, you know, there, there are people who usually say, well, the, the a Ponzi scheme must have an operator, must have someone, uh, uh, one guy that tells a lie to everybody. But that's not the reason why investing in Ponzi schemes is bad. The reason why investing in Ponzi schemes is bad is that the money that goes in is always more than the money that comes out, that people take out. So some people may be able to take out more than what they put in, but then others will inevitably, mathematically, lose money. See, I can see someone pushing back against this because when you say that the nature of a Ponzi is that money going in is more than money coming out, like there's less money coming out, someone might, might say, well, look, you know, if you bought blockbuster stock in 2001, you would have had less money at the end. So blockbuster is now a Ponzi scheme. Well, first of all, I mean, uh, blockbusters was not supposed to, to collapse, right? Uh, companies in general are created to, because they expect to make a profit. And the, on the average, companies do make a profit. And so that's why people keep investing in stocks. Otherwise, people would have given up on stocks a long time ago. So the difference here that I, that I, that I think you're alluding to is that with Ponzi's, there's, just, there's no productivity. Yeah. Exactly. Any productivity is accidental, purely for the sake of continuing the Ponzi, but there is no productivity. So as, an, as a good example that you're well familiar with and you hear all the time is Bernie Madoff. So in the case of Bernie Madoff, he's taking money from investors. The investors believe he's putting it in blue chip stocks like Microsoft, mm -hmm. but he's not. And so this money is going to, you know, purchasing the building and paying for his very small, very suspiciously small staff and for buying him more properties and for 
uh, getting him opportunities to get more investors into the, the, the Ponzi and to pay out previous investors. Mm-hmm. But money is never going anywhere productive. And that's the big difference here between a hedge fund that takes money and allocates it towards stocks, like you mentioned, that produce something and have non-speculative income and something like Bernie Madoff, where all of the money is just going nowhere but to Bernie Madoff and to keep the, the, the Ponzi going. Yeah, exactly. The, the, that's the key difference. Stocks, they have a positive expectation of profit. People generally expect, not maybe in particular cases, but on stocks as a whole, that uh, every investor will get more money out than what put in. That's the expectation because they expect the profit of the company will be more than enough to cover the initial investment plus interest plus, plus extra profit. Whereas for Bitcoin, we know, it is clear, it's obvious that there will never be such profit coming in and that miners are taking money out. So the expectation of expected return for, from investing in a Ponzi is strictly negative, mathematically. Okay, when you are investing, you should invest in something that you have an expectation of profit. If a business has an expectation of loss, then no one should invest in it. Right. There's an elus- elusive property of these new Ponzi schemes in cryptocurrency in that they don't, for starters, they don't collapse often in the, in, the, in the typical sense of a Ponzi scheme, like a BitConnect or a Bernie Madoff that completely disappears overnight. Sometimes in cryptocurrency, you just have coins that go down a lot and they just lose volume on exchanges. They never uh, you know, pump, they never grow in price. And so all of the people that bought those tokens, they're stuck holding bags. They're stuck with a, uh, a you know a, a pay stub that doesn't mean anything to anyone, like a ticket stub. An obvious challenge for the average person to understand why it is that it's a zero sum game, and and I'm I'm struggling myself to to fully art- articulate the, the obviousness there. But let's let's talk about the the the, the loss. So. When people buy Bitcoin as an investment, they hope in the future to sell it to the next person who buys Bitcoin as an investment. And before we talk about loss, I'll ask, uh, I wanted to connect to the earlier point about criminal activity. Criminal activity is an example that you've mentioned. It's the only one where you can expect returns on Bitcoin if there are more criminals using Bitcoin in a non-speculative way which is to say that they're holding it because they need to put money offshore or they need to, to send money to someone or to ransomware a large company or to whatever it is. That's one example where you can imagine the price of Bitcoin going up over time for, you know, not in, in necessarily in the, in the same way as a stock, but at least there's some justification there because you bought Bitcoin at one point when there was a certain amount of criminal activity that demanded a certain US dollar value of Bitcoin demand has gone up now you're holding on to a commodity that has more demand so you would agree that this is non-speculative use case that could account for some price appreciation over time okay it is sort of speculative because i mean there is a thing called the money velocity equation one of the many things i learned (laughs) thanks to bitcoin it gives you an equation that says what would be the value of a currency. If you know the amount of payments that the currency is being used for, 
and uh, for how long did people hold it at first before uh, using it again, and how, many, how much of the currency is in circulation. That equation is not very useful because it has many parameters that are very difficult to guess. But if you put very conservative guesses on that, about the volume of drug payments that will be done in Bitcoin or the criminal payments that will be done in Bitcoin, the amount of money in circulation, that's you know exactly how much there is. And the, the other thing is how long will someone hold up Bitcoin that you receive it before you use that money again. If you put the, um, generous guesses into those parameters, you'll get a very small value. In 2014, uh, there was this professor who did that at the New York Senate hearing. You, you probably know who we're talk, talking about that. He estimated that the price of Bitcoin should be $10 or less. And he assumed that, well, Bitcoiners will realize that. So the price will crash. Of course, Bitcoiners <laughs> never realized that. He is the favorite target of scorn by Bitcoiners. Someone should do that computation again. Now, certain that you will get a value that is much, much less than the $35,000 that are now. But then there is the problem that, well, how can you invest in a business that caters to prime? Sooner or later, the government will pump down on that, on that thing, and then you lose everything. It will be like... I don't know. Would you invest in a company that specializes in, in a taxi company that specializes in getaway runs for bank robbers or, or a company that specializes in digging tunnels under a national border? It would be foolish to invest in such a company, right? And so if the only use case of Bitcoin that uh, could make it be worth more than just a Ponzi scheme is, uh, is its use as a uh, money of the PayPal of crime, you should not count that. There's a couple of things here. The first is the fact that when you have actual currency-like use of Bitcoin, that is, someone is wanting to buy drugs on the internet, they buy Bitcoin at an ATM, they pay a high fee, they send that Bitcoin that later that day, the receiver receives that Bitcoin, uh, maybe another day goes by, the receiver gets their cash in the opposite direction. The actual demand for Bitcoin for a million dollars worth of, of drug deals over a, a year might only account for a thousand dollars of Bitcoin because the velocity is so high. These drug dealers are not holding Bitcoin for you know months at a time. They're 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 quickly going in and out. And so for a million dollars worth of transactions, you might only need a thousand dollars worth of, of Bitcoin at any moment. Um, and that's, that's the first thing that you're really pointing out here, right? So when we talk about currency, it's, it's, it's very weak, this argument, um, especially given how small the dark net markets are compared to the speculative side. Exactly. And that's why this in 2014, and I, I don't know exactly who this is, but I've, I've heard of this story, uh, $10 per Bitcoin makes a lot of sense. And today I could tell you with pretty reasonable amount of confidence that number is probably less than $100 per Bitcoin. Um, if anything, it could be like $15 per Bitcoin. It sounds, it sounds perfectly reasonable, yes. Right. And the important thing here is, uh, this brings up an ethical question, which is that if you have a Bitcoin and it's worth $10 and you think criminal activity is going to go up to $15 a Bitcoin in, in terms of commercial utility, do you really want to be the person that made 50% profit off of the growth of criminal enterprise? I think that's the ethical question you're bringing forward. 
uh, here. Yeah, or, or not even an ethical question. It is a, a question of personal safety, right? And if you invest in a company that digs tunnels under the under the border for drug smugglers, you, you cannot. Uh, you, you should be very afraid that you will be prosecuted as aiding that criminal activity. So, for, from that perspective, I mean, beyond ethics, it's just the legal side. This is probably uh, goes to your letters to the SEC because. What you're arguing is both that is Ponzi, it's a bad, it's a negative loss investment, uh, sorry, negative sum investment. But on top of that, there's another element, which is that allowing c- citizens to profit off of criminal enterprise should not be allowed. Yeah, I think that the SEC should never allow a company to be listed in the stock market. If the business of that company is clearly based on legal activity. Even if it is not the illegal activity itself, it is something that only helps illegal activity. Those companies, those fictitious companies that I mentioned, I mean, I don't, I can't imagine how the SEC would approve. Okay, you can trade them on the stock market, but the SEC is just uh, is the authority only for for the investment side of funds. They are not concerned. It's not their job to stop criminal activity. It's only their job to stop fraudulent investments or, or uh, dubious investments or demand uh, complete uh, uh, information from people who are setting up companies. The criminal aspect of Bitcoin is the concern of FBI and uh, FinCEN and other uh, and ever, and other agencies that are concerned about money laundering and, and the criminal activity per se. And it appears that the SEC also often doesn't do a good job and, and, and shows up far too late when it comes to these criminal fraud examples like Bernie, most famously Bernie Madoff. Yeah, well, yeah, Bernie, at least the, the SEC has the excuse that Kinsey claimed uh, um, in trade secret uh, and so he refused to disclose exactly what he was doing. The SEC just didn't know what was happening. But by and large, I mean, governments hardly prosecute pyramid schemes or Ponzi schemes or MLM schemes while they are in full swing. Because uh, they know that if they stop such a scheme when it is running, they will have millions of people who will blame the the government for their losses, not the the Ponzi scheme created. I mean... The FBI may have a thicker skin in that sense. So the FBI may stop Bitcoin, no matter how many people are invested, no matter how many senators, whether there are senators or even SEC members that are invested in Bitcoin. But the, the SEC will probably not want to do that. They may prevent something from starting, but if they let, if the thing has already started, they cannot, they will not be able to stop it uh, until it. Cra- it collapses by itself, and then the government will move in. That has always been the case, I mean, uh, in many other, not just in Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies, or to frauds in general. Does it make you cynical that this is the approach to dealing with Ponzi schemes and pyramid schemes? Uh, it made me sad, right? But, uh, I mean, uh, um, I, I, I can only wish that uh, the SEC made a little more effort Toward that thing, I mean, I mean, grumbled, grumbled <laughs> a little bit louder 
when faced with such schemes rather than just staying silent, right? So they have been doing that sort of, but very, very, very soft. I mean, like saying that, well, you have to be careful when you invest. We are prosecuting ICOs that look like uh, securities, uh, but they don't say anything about uh, the other kinds of ICOs and so forth. And they, they refused some uh, Bitcoin ETFs, but they didn't come out clearly and said, no, we are not going to accept Bitcoin ETF, period, right? which I think they should. If what you're saying is true about it being a tool to profit off of criminal enterprise or a tool to profit off of a Ponzi scheme, which is a bad idea, it's a negative sum game, it's a, it's a fraudulent entity that isn't productive, um, it would make a lot of sense for the SEC to openly say, that they don't support it, that they have no intention of allowing ETFs, that they don't recommend any banker push their clients to hold a div diversified portfolio, which includes cryptocurrencies. Um, that's true, but I think uh, even just saying that will bring uh, a lot of uh, negative, I mean, very angry people uh, on top of that. There would be probably speeches in Congress and more articles in mainstream media or whatever that uh, blasting the SEC for stifling innovation and so forth. There is one commissioner of the SEC that has been publishing dissenting opinions where uh, she is openly positive about Bitcoin. She, I think she went to speak at the Bitcoin conference in Miami. <laughs> Publicly, I would prefer to say that the biggest uh, problem uh, that prevents the SEC from being more um, earnest, I don't know, more, more categorical about uh, cryptocurrencies, more negative about cryptocurrency, is the fear of the public reaction. If they even say, look, I mean, stay clear. We will not ban them, but stay clear. They have approved the Coinbase listing. Uh, I mean, Coinbase is now traded publicly on, on stock exchanges. So if they say, well, well, Bitcoin is not good for except for Ponzi or for uh, criminal activity, then, well, how can, they, <laughs> how can they explain Coinbase? If they delist Coinbase, then, well, the whole hell would break loose, right? So. You, you mentioned that the SEC is afraid of stifling innovation. The innovation that we're discussing here is primarily around computer science and distributed systems, and there's obviously an economic component. Now, in your view, what is the innovation that's happened in 12 years of Bitcoin and whatever blockchain means at this point? Let me be clear. I mean, I don't think the SEC is afraid of stifling innovation. I think they can, they recognize that Bitcoin is not a promising thing. They are afraid that the public will accuse them of stifling innovation. The promoters' uh, discourse when they talk to the SEC is that, well, you cannot, you cannot put obstacles to our companies because that would be stifle innovation and would uh, uh, harm the, the leadership of the technical leadership of the U.S., uh, the world, and so forth and so forth. And so, well, they, they cannot respond to those things because they are not technically qualified to do so. They may not believe in them. But, of course, they, they know that that will be raised 
if they, they, they do something that harms uh, Bitcoin, whatever. Now answering the question, I mean, I haven't seen anything in, in Bitcoin that, that, that uh, is a positive uh, contribution to the technology. We can talk about blockchain technology specifically later, but uh, there is nothing that has come, has come out of it that's worth, uh, that, that's worth for anything. Uh, smart contracts, which are not Bitcoin, but are Ethereum and other cryptocurrency, they, they, uh, they, they sound great when you hear them, but then um, you learn that they cannot have they cannot take any information from the real world, and they cannot have any effect on the real world, except uh, by having um, agents who have put information into the blockchain or take uh, or act on basis on what happens on the blockchain. But those entities will have to be constrained by contracts. Uh, they follow laws, and then they can dispute the things in, in, in court. And so what's the point then of having the, a smart contract if you need two contracts uh, with the companies to put the data in and then to take to, the, to act on, on the result? So, so uh, smart contracts have become a way of creating extremely complicated obfuscation um, uh, on top of the basic uh, idea that, well, the organizers take money from the suckers who invest in them. Uh, all, all uh, smart contracts, decentralized uh, finance, uh, ICOs that uh, that uh, run in, uh, on Ethereum, they are uh, just like that. Basically. Money flowing from uh, investors to developer to the guys who created the scheme uh, without any guarantee that there will be money or even any possibility of money flowing the other way. Again, there seems to be this weird, elusive nature where, on the one hand, if you listen to someone who genuinely believes in blockchain, whatever that means, right, or genuinely believes in you know, proof of work, proof of stake, they will list 25 industries that are completely changed by blockchain. I, I pulled up here, as an example, a chart that is probably a very good selling point. Uh, to encourage, you know, dumb money to enter the space and, um, and join, um, the, 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 the Ponzi. Um, and here I'm, I'm, you know, reading it and it's just a list of, uh, I'll, I'll just read a few here, you know, decentralized IOT, internet of things, decentralized storage using a network of computers on blockchain, digitization of documents and contracts and proof of ownership for transfers provides digital identity that protects consumer privacy. And it goes on and on and on. So, you know, the, the story that you're telling and the story that this is telling is just, it's just black and white. And how does the average person that doesn't have a background in computer science judge these claims versus the claims that you're, you're telling me right now? Well, that's a big problem. Yes. Uh, I mean, uh, it takes a lot of time and effort. To debunk each one of those claims, and whenever you finish debunking one, three new ones have arrived, uh, they have been invented. Uh, I think we just have to keep trying. <laughs> so, like, I mean, blockchain technology is useless because the only thing that the blockchain provides is an append-only log that 
supposedly tend to be temperate with, right? So it is a you can put things in there, and um, you are confident, you are supposed to trust that those things will never be erased or reversed. Uh, that's the only thing it does. But uh, every bank or any major uh, company that runs internet services uh, for good or for, for real serious, for, for when billions are at stake, they already have those mechanisms. You can make append-only log that is virtually temple-proof uh, without using the, the blockchain or without depending on any cryptocurrency. You can have, you just put it into several com dependent companies with contracts that say that they have to keep a copy of that log intact and, um, and well, the more copies you get, the harder it is to, to, for any one of them to be tempered with. So, so, so the blockchain doesn't provide anything to software developers, uh, to, to financial software developers that they don't already have. They they, and in fact, they can do that at much smaller cost, much faster, and much more reliable. Because, the, for example, the Bitcoin blockchain has been, there were two occasions in which the Bitcoin blockchain was rewound by, by 50 or more blocks. And then rebuilt uh, with one transaction, remove it, or with one transaction, replace it. The idea that it is tamper proof, well, when you point out those things, they will say, oh, okay, but, it, but those things, those incidents don't count. It is tamper proof. Um, okay, it was tampered twice, but those don't count because they were good. <laughs> For the audience, would you recount those two incidences? I know one of them was to do with the level DB fork, I'm guessing, is what you're discussing. And the other one was the uh, hyperinflation of, or like the, the rapid printing out of thin air of Bitcoins back in 2011? 2010, I think. The first incident in 2010, uh, someone found a, a bug in the code that everybody was using to, to process Bitcoin. Something like if you try to spend a negative amount of Bitcoin, uh, then instead of uh, getting less Bitcoins, <laughs> as a result, you would get 2 billion Bitcoins more because of the way right. that overflow works. And so someone did that and created, uh, I think, 40 billion Bitcoins or something of that order uh, out of nothing. Uh, and it took a while, well, the, the people realized what had happened. And it took a while for the, for the administrator at the time to talk to the major miners and convince them to go back and uh, start from the uh, block of the blockchain just before that transaction was approved and build another chain uh, trying to replay all the transactions on the old, that were in the old chain minus that one so as to well, exclude that one. And at the same time, uh, outlaw any negative numbers, <laughs> arithmetic operations that could create negative numbers. Okay, so that was the 2010 incident. And then in 2013, there was a, another bug. I'm not so clear about exactly the technicals of that one, but basically it resulted in some miners going one way. And there was a, a new release of the software that changed the database library that they were using. And as a result of my bug in that release, some miners went with one blockchain and other blockchain split into some miners went to one branch, some miners went to the other branch, more or less random. 
And so, well, the, the, what they uh, uh, what they had beside them, and since the the new branch was uh, the buggy one, uh, the the administrate the uh, chief developers at the time talked again to the miners, convinced that those that were mining with the new software to go back, start mining with the old software, and start mining on the old on the chain uh, on one of, of the chain that uses that old software, whatever. So. Um, and during that uh, operation, I mean, there was one one transaction that for ten thousand dollars that someone had deposited into a payment processor. Um, that uh, the guy managed to sneak another transaction that moves those same coins to another place. What's called a double spam? That's not technically well. That's not a good name for it because the coins were not uh, doubly spent. It's actually I, I prefer to call that a fraudulent. Payment reversal, right? The guy. Ah. Uh, okay, so the guy managed to reverse the deposit that he had made to to uh, OK Pay to the payment to that payment processor, and instead use those move those coins elsewhere so that they could not be uh, deposited again in a new chain. Right. So I, I would call that a fraudulent reversal because there never was uh, two. Pay payments with the same coins in the blockchain. There, there was a payment in one chain that got reversed because the chain was thrown away and then a new payment was put in its place. So, But anyway, uh, I think that that's not important. But uh, then, uh, so those are two examples where the Bitcoin blockchain was reversed by the mechanism that everybody expects from a 51%, so-called 51% attack. Which is uh, someone convinces uh, a majority of the miners to abandon the blockchain that they have been building and start building another branch, uh, starting from a much earlier block, in which um, uh, and in that second block, one transaction or more are uh, changed and uh, reversed, right, or reversed or whatever. So. That's one. That's um, essentially what happened in those two cases. Were two friendly fifty-one percent attacks, but they were exactly like the fifty-one percent attack is expected to run. And that's not the only time, of course, that the cryptocurrency community has seen uh, essentially an immutable blockchain be mutated. Um, you, you were front and center as Vitalik excitedly um, told everyone and encouraged investment in the DAO, which is the first decentralized autonomous organization, sort of a decentralized hedge fund on the Ethereum network. Uh, do you remember much of what happened there and what, what it was like to, to watch that spectacle? Yeah, Ethereum was, well, um, was founded on the principle that smart contracts are um, programs that run, that the miners uh, process like if they were computing servers. They process each program for a while. They save the state in the blockchain. Then another miner takes that and processes a little bit more and so forth. And the idea was that those smart contracts will never be, uh, they, they could never be tampered with. Uh, so once the contract is there, you can be certain that uh, uh, the code is sacred. You can be certain that the a contract will be executed exactly as it was written. No going back, no court, no going to the courts to get reversed or whatever. 
Well, but then when, when uh, well, lots of people, including uh, Vitalik and many uh, of the major miners, have invested lots of Ethereum and coins into the, the distributed autonomous organization. Now, uh, someone found a, a bug in that uh, code and the user that exploited that bug to take out, I think, 14% of all the money that was put in there before they could stop it. For, at first, I think they froze the, the contract and then they had to change the meaning of the code. They had to, to tamper with the uh, lodge with the protocol. So that's to change the meaning of that code so that they could take their money out, the rest of the money out. So that essentially broke completely. Bitcoin was created to be a, a decentralized payment system. Uh, so, well, you should judge it whether it works or not by how well it performs in the payment system. But Ethereum was created to be a platform for smart contracts. Uh, on the premise that smart, uh, and smart contracts were supposed to be good because they are um, impossible to stop or, or reverse or tamper with. Because code is law, right? Code, code is law. law. That was what they were saying all the time before. Uh, and so, well, then when they tampered with, <laughs> with the code, because, well, the, 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 code, the, the, the law that the code enforces was not uh, good for them, right? Not financially beneficial for them, right? It would have meant a lot of big losses for them. So they just went in there, threw away the Codius law principle, and uh, changed the law. Um, um, so that that should I mean that should be a cautionary tale for for everybody who invests in cryptocurrency, thinking that well things like uh, there will never be more than twenty one million Bitcoin. You've mentioned before that you don't believe that to be the case because you see that it's possible that a bunch of miners collude and decide to pay themselves more money because there's not enough subsidy for the block reward as time goes on. And what are the users going to do if the actual hash power is switching to, you know, a, ch a chain that, that has slightly changed the rules to give more money to, to the miners? Well, the, the, first of all, I mean, the, the, that's just if they just want to do it the straightforward way of, uh, increasing the re block reward. Then they will have to do what's called a hard fork, which requires everybody to upgrade their, their wallet software in order to be able to follow that uh, the new the, the change in the new rule, right? Because otherwise, everybody's checking the blockchain will reject those blocks with increased reward. Uh, so that that's a hard fork. It is, a, it is a change in the protocol that requires everybody to upgrade in order to, to be able to still accept those blocks. Sure, but the miners could could essentially make it very uncomfortable to remain on the old chain by mining uh, very quickly and then by pulling out all their hash power to make like many weeks of incredibly slow blocks, even slower than what we have now with a 70% dip in, in the hash power. And it could get to the point where it's almost impossible to use Bitcoin except for to switch to the primary chain with the most proof of work. Well, you, you don't first, I mean, if there is a hard fork like that, people don't have to switch their coins to the, to the new coin. When the fork happens, as it happened in BCH and BTC fork, 
every coin that people have in, in the original chain, they will get the same amount of coins in both chains. So they don't have to move their coins from one chain to the other. It will be red, there already. The problem is convincing everybody to upgrade their software to use the new chain and forget the old one. Oh, it's a 67% attack. Would work like this. I mean, if you you need a majority, that's not just a simple majority of the miners. You need a strong majority of at least more than two thirds. And what they would do is is uh, they put half of their hash power to mine their coin, and the other half to sabotage the chain with all the protocol. So they sabotage it by just mining empty blocks or blocks full of garbage and uh, rejecting all transactions in that chain. People will not be able to. To move their coins unless they upgrade and then they can move their coins in the new chain and the, mine, the, the other miners that are not part of the attack they cannot overcome the attackers because they have only one less than one third of the total hash power so they have less they don't have enough hash power to override those empty blocks uh, and they cannot even sabotage the new chain of the miners because that chain too has more than one third of the have more hash power than the, the, the honest, honest miners have. So everybody, uh, they would have to use, to upgrade and use the new coin of the miners, and that would be and that will all be uh, like before. It would be like when Ethereum decided to change um, the code. I mean, everybody had to upgrade in order to use the new rules that allowed people to take money out of the DAO. When you say that to Bitcoiners, they would say, "Oh, okay," but when then we will change. POW, the, the proof of work mechanism, proof of work formula that, that the Bitcoin uses to use uh, something to be a formula that the miners cannot mine. Uh, but that would just create another fork that is uh, very weak because it can only be mined on CPUs. Um, so it would be like uh, <coughs> a Bitcoin in 2009 or something. <laughs> And that can be easily overridden by anyone who has just enough money to buy more uh, computing power on, on Amazon. Well, that has never happened that I know of. Maybe unless you count Ethereum, the Ethereum fork. I think it is a, a real possibility if there is a sufficient motivation for the miners to do so. And um, if the price of Bitcoin drops a lot, then there will be a, I think there will be a strong motivation for them to do that. Well, it's an interesting point when we talk about a decentralized network where you have 20 organizations, six very large mining pools, and then a single ban from China results in a 75% or 60% drop from peak to trough of the hash power in less than a month. This is quite telling of the level of decentralization. Yeah, unfortunately, and that's one thing that was not clear in 2009, but uh, became clear uh, afterwards. I mean, Satoshi himself he was very upset when someone post posted code to mine uh, using a GPU, because he said, well, then people who have uh, GPUs or can put a rack full of GPUs, they would have a, a much bigger uh, fraction of the hash power than... Uh, ordinary miners, and that will lead to concentration of the ash power. And unfortunately, that's what happened. And that was more or less inevitable because, as other people have already pointed out, I mean, there are many economies of scale that apply when you, um, 
that make bigger miners or bigger pools more efficient than smaller ones. Uh, so the tendency is for mining, and that you can see in every cryptocurrency, the tendency is for miners to, uh, for mining to, to get concentrated into bigger companies, into a few big companies. Probably Bitcoin should be dominated by a single pool today. If it was not, well, that would look very bad. Uh, I mean, there was once a pool that reached 51% of the total hash power, but uh, then there were, Bitcoiners got all alarmed and make a lot of noise so that the pool was split off into a more smaller pool. But I mean, uh, who knows who owns those pools? Uh, we know that uh, I think that at least two of those big Chinese pools were actually owned by the same uh, by the same people. We just kept the two pools separate um, for, for for image reasons, right? Right. All of these issues uh, that we've talked about so far, and and there are some technical issues about decentralization. What we hear a lot of now is that when you bring up a concern with Bitcoin, people tell you that there are technical solutions that are just over the horizon that will make cryptocurrency viable, where today it's not. And this is something that is kind of a, a prevalent theme, which is that currently things don't work, but they don't work because of computer science reasons, and those solutions are imminently being added. And I really would love to get your reflection on some of these innovations and how likely they are to actually be useful or helpful, and to what extent a lot of the people who are financially benefiting off of the tokens, uh, you know, getting new uh, retail investors, um, how many of them are actually presenting legitimate uh, information. Let's start with Bitcoin's Lightning Network. In your eyes, does it solve any serious problems and is it a practical solution for the future in any meaningful way? Before we go into the, the, the Lightning Network, uh, let me say that that's not just in the technical field that they are using that, that strategy. I mean, in the political and economical field and legal field too, they are always promising that, well, Things are bad now. The payment system is impractical, doesn't work, and, but we will fix it by technical. Um, adoption is very small now, but it will be great in the future. Uh, companies are not, in, banks are not investing, <laughs> are not, companies are not investing in Bitcoin now, but uh, soon uh, they, they will be investing in it and so forth. So, so it's not just technically that they are uh, always promising things for the for the future. And that's the secret of why I think now I realize why, why Bitcoin has lasted so long. Because unlike uh, others fraud schemes, there is no time scale in their promises. They promise that, that you will get rich, but they don't tell you <laughs> when, <laughs> only that soon, <laughs> or, or not, not long from now, right? So, so, <laughs> so that's why, I mean, people still believe, well, okay, it's better now, but okay. Now going back to the, the Lightning Network. Lightning Network is another payment system that depends on, on Bitcoin for the base technology, but very different sort of network. Instead of having one big ledger that everybody sees and miners that just add transactions to that ledger, there are people connect to each other. In this network, people connect to each other by means of so-called 
payment channels, which is just a thing with two endpoints, let's say, two end users that can be used to send money, to send coins between those two users. And so, well, the, the, the payment channels were already described by Satoshi uh, in 2010 or, or earlier. But um, so that is not new. What's new is the idea that, well, you can take, if you want to pay someone, but you don't have a channel to them, you can make a path of several channels uh, to go from one person to another to, to reach that. And then you there is a um, crypto magic trick that lets you tie all those transfers. I mean, you send, uh, Alice sent Bob, Bob sent Carol, Carol sends to Dave and so forth until it gets resolved. Uh, it lets you tie all those payments together in such a way that either all of them succeed or none of them succeed. So there is no no no, no possibility that money will have got out of Alice but get stuck in Mike somewhere in the middle of the, of the way. Right. So either it reaches the end or it doesn't go out at all. But, but before we jump into sort of like like technical lightning network, I just want to touch base here on the concept of a payment channel and um and what Satoshi was talking about. It when he described payment channels, he was using the end sequence feature of Bitcoin, essentially saying that people, if they needed to pay someone for something and they want to stream money, they can continuously broadcast a transaction which slightly updates the state of how much money they owe this, you know, whatever it is, uh, Netflix on a, on a minute by minute basis. And then the highest end sequence will be the one that the miners should accept. Of course, this didn't, this wasn't practical and I don't believe it ever got implemented today. Instead, what's being used is sort of these, you know, hash time lock contracts to allow people to first do a single Bitcoin transaction between two participants, two parties, and establish essentially a tab between each other. And what you're describing now, what's the, 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 I guess the most interesting part of this application is that if you have, if Alice has a t tab with Bob and Bob has a tab with Carol, then Alice can directly pay Carol. There are some claims of privacy, anonymity, um, instant, instant and free. These are sort of the, uh, the claims that are being made about uh, these payments. So are there any technical limitations in the Lightning Network as you see them now? Yeah, I mean, so so one big one difference that's important between the the current uh, payment channels and Satoshi's payment channels is that those updates Alice must pay something to Bob, so they she prepares another transaction that uh, pays a little a bit more of the uh, initial funding uh, that she had put into the channel to Bob, and then updates that transaction many times. The difference with Satoshi schemes is that that uh, those updates they don't get broadcast to the miner. That's an essential thing. Only the two end, ah. the two users gets to know them. Okay, um, and so um, well, so so the the first problem is the following: if you if you want to send ten dollars, uh, Alice wants to send ten dollars. So she not only has to find a path that connects it. Her to Zoe, but she she must find a path where all every channel still has enough uh, capacity left to carry ten dollars. So the, the, this this problem is sort of the traveling salesman problem. No, no. They, they, I mean, many people have the, that mistaken notion that it is. It is not the traveling salesman problem. You, you ask for a path that travels to the 
to everybody. Right. Uh, right. And it is the cheapest possible. There is the shortest path problem that asks, well, what is the shortest path from A to B? And that's a much easier problem than finding a path that goes through all everybody. Uh, but the, what you need in the Lightning Network is not even that. It's much easier, even easier problem. Just find one path. But the problem is that the path has to, um, every hop in that path must um, uh, have enough, every channel that appears in that path must have enough capacity to send the payment that you want to send. Uh, and the, the capacity that remains in each channel is not known to anybody except the two guys at the, at the two ends of the channel because uh, the payments that they made it to the channel are known only to them. Uh, so how, do you, how does Alice find uh, a path to Zoe that has enough capacity? That's a conceptual problem that no one has been able to give a good solution so far. Uh, and that's a problem that gets much, much worse the more people you have in the net. So this is the route finding problem. The problem is that you don't know if a particular channel will allow your, your money to go through. And so you try it, and if it fails, you have to try something else. And you continuously do this over and over and over again. Yeah. And the question is, how do you solve this if there's 100,000 nodes and a million channels? This is the, 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 this is the point that you're making here. You would have to have a large database of all of the different nodes and channels, and you'd have to regularly test um, the, uh, the liquidity between each channel. It seems like this is another example of how things just revert to simplicity, which is centralization, that a few nodes are incredibly well-connected, and so everyone just decides always route through these seven nodes. Yeah, the, problem, yes. the, finding, the pathfinding problem is not uh, as easy to solve if there is a channel between the two nodes or if there is a path with exactly two channels. You go to a, to a guy, that has a channel to whom you want to send it to. Because then you can easily find that path by just asking the, the middle guy, uh, well, I want to send payment to Zoe. So he said, okay, I have a channel to Zoe. That's it. But if you need a three or more hops, then you don't know who to ask. Which of your neighbors will have a channel that will not have a channel, have a channel to one of the neighbors, the destination? The centralization, centralizing that thing is possible, but it would completely defeat the purpose because the, the whole point of the Lightning Network was that the transactions that go between two guys, they don't have to be broadcast to anyone. Uh, only the two guys need to know about them, only when there is time to close the channel that is to, to settle the, the tab. Uh, they would have to go to the tell the miner as well, close the channel and I get this much, you, that he gets that much. So um, I mean, if, if now every node has to broadcast to like, some central um, server, uh, what is the state of the channel? Then it defeats both the, the decentralization purpose, the, the scalability purpose, and the, the, the privacy purpose. <laughs> because, well, you, you, it's very easy for someone who has the information to, to trace that you are buying drugs from the dark net, even if you go through 10 nodes. Either it's private and inefficient, or not private and somewhat efficient. Not just inefficient. It is uh, basically impossible to solve. Because there is the data that you needed to find the path is not there. It is impossible if you have a hundred million nodes. It is impossible to try all possible paths 
until one of them succeeds. Right, and there's nothing that says that a node cannot purposefully, uh, you know, make fake channels and 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 not let certain payments through. The topology of the network it's it's trustless, meaning that you don't trust any of the participants. So the participants are can be you know DDoS attacks. They can be spying on you. So it's very it makes it much much more complicated. Something that you mentioned in an earlier exchange was that cryptocurrencies in general cannot be more efficient than incumbent centralized systems because cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin and blockchain have one serious constraint, which is they must be decentralized. They must not have a central server that manages everything. And in an optimization function, when you add constraints, you get fewer solutions and your solutions are can never be better than without a constraint. Um, I think this is a fundamentally, I mean, so when I heard that, uh, you know, be, because I, I, uh, I studied math at the university, um, this sort of immediately rang true with me that you cannot have better optimization if you have more constraints. It can only be worse than having no constraints. So how does that tie into any of these companies that want to make use of cryptocurrencies? Let's start with Tesla. Was it smart that Tesla accepted Bitcoin as payment from a practical perspective as, as a business? Didn't they go back on that? Well, it's been, it's been 24 hours, so who, who knows? T tomorrow they accept, and then I think Friday they're going to reject again, and then Saturday they'll probably accept again. Well, I thought that they had accepted. Uh, they had decided to accept, and they went back, so they are, they are accepting again now. Okay. Right. right. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, I mean, well, the problem with that is that, well, suppose that um, uh, they sell a Tesla for $30,000 in Bitcoin, and then they launch its two emojis. And then suddenly those bitcoins are worth twenty-eight thousand dollars. Right. So right. Uh, the companies are already struggling to make a profit out of their sales. Unless they can time Elon's emojis to after he gets the bitcoin for the comp for the cars, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, but uh, yeah. So I, I, I don't know. I think that well, Elon and Michael Saylor are guys who have been uh, dealing managing companies. Uh, with public uh, public companies for for decades, so uh, they must know that uh, <laughs> Bitcoin is not uh, like uh, a stock, right? And so, uh, but uh, obviously they expect that they are gambling and they expecting to win by by pulling out before it crashes or something like that. Do do, do you believe you know Michael Saylor is difficult because I I, I just I think he's. Um... He's sort of drunk off of the fumes of the cryptocurrency space. I think he's, you know, going to that Bitcoin Miami conference was a pretty good example of like what exactly he's in. Um, Elon Musk and Jack Dorsey. So Jack Dorsey is this is was the CEO of Twitter, the inventor of Twitter, founder. Um, both of them are not really in the Bitcoin community as much, I think, but they're very supportive. Do you think they know? you know, deep down or they're cognitively aware that they have to pull out in time um, in this pyramid and that that's, that's how things have to fall apart? Or do you genuinely, or do you think that maybe, in, you know, deep down, they actually do believe this is a tenable uh, technology that will take over the internet? I find it hard to believe that Elon Musk doesn't understand that it is a policy. But um, as for 
Jack Dorsey is a different case. I think from what he, he says, I think that he is still a cypherpunk, very convicted uh, cypherpunk, uh, which means that he loves Bitcoin for um, its uh, promise of freedom or uh, economic uh, privacy, economic freedom, and things like that. That's apparently, well, the few things I've, I've seen him say in public seem to be of that sort. Not about, well, it's a good store of value or anything, which is what Michael Saylor and Elon Musk are saying. Right. You know, I, I find it's hard to play the psychology game of what people actually believe, because when you're a politician or the head of a large company, what you're saying isn't so much what you believe, but what you want investors of your company to think you believe. You're trying to, to, to appeal to an audience. And that's what makes it very different than, for example, like what a professor would say they believe. Um, although even there, there's a little bit of, 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 of disclarity. In the case of Jack Dorsey, he, uh, he, owns, he owns a company, I believe, Square Cash, is it? That lets you know, uh, people buy Bitcoin directly from his app. So it is in his self-interest financially to maintain uh, the look that Bitcoin is a very logical purchase. Uh, I wanted to switch gears a little bit and just ask about some other technological claims that are being made that you can shed light on with with your uh, professional insight. So uh, Ethereum right now is claiming that just like Bitcoin, no one's using it in any practical legal ways. It's mostly Ponzi schemes and ICOs, but very soon it's going to be very usable. And the way that they, it's going to happen is they're going to switch to proof of stake. They're going to have sharding. They're going to have layer two solutions. Um, in your professional experience, what, how promising are these things? And what is the likelihood that they solve any serious concerns with Ethereum? Well, proof of stakes will solve one concern, which if it's working, it would solve one concern, which is the, the, the energy expenditure. Are you convinced that it will work, proof of stake? No, I, I'm not at all convinced that it will work. I cannot point to any flaw right now, but I mean, I, I wouldn't have been unable to point to flaws in Satoshi's proposal right away. Well, just like Vitalik couldn't find a flaw with the DAO, right? Before, before he had to rewrite the blockchain. Yeah, exactly. I, I mean, technically, uh, I think that you can make uh, a proof of stake work, technically. But the big pro question is whether the economics and the uh, uh, sociology of it would work. So, one concern that I have is that uh, probably proof of stake will end up as much centralized as um, proof of stake mining will end up being as centralized as proof of work is, uh, even or even more. I mean, because the same economists tend to seem to be the same. I mean, it doesn't matter whether you are uh, you have a big stake or a small stake. Your costs for processing, uh, for mining, are the same, uh, and so therefore, well, if you are, a, <laughs> if two um, small guys join forces and uh, they pull their stake uh, together, they only have one, I mean, one, one cost instead of two, two twice that cost, uh, and they get the, the same reward. They can split. So, so I think that. It's likely that we will see higher concentration of mine. And then there might be other problems. There might be bugs that miners can gain the system that we couldn't just uh, 
looking at the proposal, we cannot envision, but some hack, just like, I mean, the, the 2010 hacker looking at the code finds out that he could uh, steal money, or the DAO hacker could, uh, looking at the contract, figure out that there was a trick that he could use to pull things off. So there may be, maybe not technical, but uh, economical tricks that uh, people can play to subvert the proof of stake. We don't know. And anyway, it has been delayed another 18 months, which seems to be a magical constant <laughs> in, the, in all those things. It's always just 18 months away until mass adoption. Yeah. Uh, and um, sharding is another proposal, which is you, you split the blockchain into, into thousands of smaller chains so that uh, the transactions that involve you don't have to get mixed with me. A miner don't have processes your transaction that doesn't have to, uh, to download and check all the transactions in the world, just uh, more, much one thousand of them. Um, I, I mean, although I've seen several people advance that idea before, and it always gets stuck in the problem that um, uh, if I am one on in one shard. If my account is in one shard and your account is in another shard, then in order to process a payment from me to you, uh, both shards have to be updated uh, together. Either the payment is recorded in both shards or in none of them. If it's recorded only in one shard but not in the other, and the other gets another payment, a different payment, then um, then you get uh, um, the thing getting into an inconsistent state. Uh, in order to prevent that from happening, there must be some central authority that uh, uh, synchronizes things. So you you then you lock. Um, I mean, there is this thing called the locks in database theory that you in database practice where you lock a certain thing. Uh, you have several agents that are acting together, updating the database, and uh, when they want to update two parts of the database in that atomic fashion, either both succeeds or non-succeeds. They have to lock uh, both parts, then no, nobody else can affect those parts, and then they can release the lock after they have made the change. But that requires some central authority to grant those locks. So it seems like we're almost kind of building a Rube Goldberg machine where we showed up and decentralization was the goal, so a huge trade-off was made. And the trade-off ref is reflected in all these shortcomings. And so then people like Vitalik and Charles Hoskinson and Blockstream show up and say, well, we're going to make these technological improvements, but those improvements add incredible amount of complexity, which will result in huge losses that we don't, we don't know about now, because like the DAO hack, we will learn about them when they happen. And then they themselves beget additional te technical problems. I think there's something sort of philosophically deeper, deeper here where there's just simply a limit to what is feasible. And I think what, what no one wants to do, and especially the likes of Vitalik Buterin, what no one wants to do is come forward and say, hey guys, we're never going to be better than these other systems because that is like axiomatic in the nature that we took, we took a trade-off. So if you're here to beat Visa and MasterCard, it's not going to happen. And by the time you beat Visa and MasterCard, if that's feasible, 
Visa and MasterCard with that same technology will go 10,000 times more efficient. So you cannot have everything. There's simply an optimization here with more constraints. So that there's, there's nothing that can, you know, happen. You've seen Vitalik go from just a, a, a contributor to the Bitcoin magazine to essentially a cult leader or whatever we want to call him, the, the leader of Ethereum, the, the savior of Ethereum. In your, in your eyes, uh, you know, in the, in the crypto space, everyone thinks he's absolutely brilliant in every way. Um, and again, with the Cardano folks, they'll say Hoskinson is brilliant. How do you see these people from a perspective of academic work? Are they being honest in the, the solutions they're, they're promoting? Are they being honest when they talk about the te technology? Um, and how can the average layperson understand if these are credible, smart people making a breakthrough in computer science or if they're just crooks selling snake oil? Yeah, um, well, there are a few people in that space that have, uh, I think, that I, I, I'm willing to consider that they are competent uh, in computer science. I mean, not not computer scientists, but competent in it. I think I know one computer scientist who is working in crypto, which is uh, a minister, right? Um, but um, most of the people who work in, in crypto, they are um, self-made uh, software developers. Uh, are not are not they don't have a significant background in education in, in uh, say like master's degrees or something like that. Some of them have. It is um, disconcerting that uh, there are some crooks that are obviously crooks, that are totally incompetent. They are frauds that have been exposed many times, and yet uh, the, uh, their followers just cannot see that. I think, I think Dan Larimer comes to mind when I think of someone who's just done it again and again and again. And people have supported him. Yeah, every time. I, I won't make a name because they probably sue me. But I have posted in in Bitcoin. I mean, uh, several articles about this person. He's a complete fraud. Fled this country because it was <laughs> defrauding the government, and now he is <laughs> pretending to be a big uh, developer or whatever. When it is obvious that he doesn't have any 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 at all. I mean, you cannot even basic math. Right. I mean, those persons, those people, they have people who believe in the coin, they believe in the leader of the coin, that the leader of the coin is brilliant, and uh, there is absolutely no way to get around that. And many of the technical claims that those people make, many of the, much of the software that they write, is not bad. It's not wrong, I mean, completely. But simply, there is some fundamental flaw in the thing that they refuse to admit and uh, their followers simply cannot cannot see either. And with Ethereum, there, as it is now, there is this basic problem that uh, smart contracts are useless. Right. Unless you want to automate Ponzi schemes. Yeah. Uh, they, they, they will not replace con standard contracts or courts of law. But yet, that's still the official talk of Ethereum promoters. For Bitcoin, there is this claim that it is decentralized. Well, it is not decentralized. You can you can see that mining is, is centralized. Exchanges are all centralized. The, the development is very centralized and inevitably so. I mean, uh, it has been since Satoshi <laughs> first posted this code. Uh, there has been one central 
development team that uh, owns the coin. And that's true for uh, all the coins that I know of. Arguably, Bitcoin is the least scammy in that the leader left and didn't cash out all of his tokens and didn't become a cult figure. Yeah, the leader, <laughs> the leader uh, cannot be called a scammer for that reason. Unless he sells now his, his, million, his million Bitcoin, then he'll be cashing on, on poor guys who are putting their savings into Bitcoin or whatever. But uh, that's true. The creator of Bitcoin is the only guy who cannot be accused of being a, a Ponzi creator. Right. Um, I wanted to take a kind of a pivot here and just fire off some re recent events and, and get your take on them. El Salvador is the first country now to accept Bitcoin as legal tender. In fact, they've gone a step further and made a motion, the, the, the president there with his 95% approval rating, made a motion that everyone must accept Bitcoin if they can um, from people who, are, who have Bitcoin in, the, in a country of 6 million. And f further... Uh, this Zap wallet um, by, I believe it's uh, Maulers, Jack Maulers, is, um, uh, is there to help people use Lightning to make these payments. What do you think about th this move? And um, I mean, I feel like your letter to the SEC was talking about something s much less concerning. It seems like the concerns are escalating at this point because the SEC adding an ETF and now, you know, that's one thing. Now you have an entire country that's making it legal tender. Not mandatory tender, in fact, right? So, so it is too early to, to, to say what will happen. When we try to analyze how that thing could work, we don't know exactly how it will work, but if we try to guess how it could work, it doesn't work. Um, there are some claims that are clearly non, that appear to be clearly nonsense, like uh, the Mueller's claim that he was using a private Lightning network. Uh, that doesn't make any sense at all. So, so, and apparently has dropped that. And I don't know what is this, uh, the, what is saying now about the Lightning network. What will happen? How will happen that? How many people will effectively get Bitcoin in El Salvador so that they can use Bitcoin to pay other other guys? Um, that's completely open question. Uh, given the high cost of Taking money, taking money out of uh, Bitcoin or turning money into Bitcoin. Um, I don't. I doubt very much that it will become a popular uh, remittance method. Uh, there have been many other attempts to make uh, remittance um, uh, systems uh, using Bitcoin. Sending money from uh, a wealthier country back home. Yeah. Those attempts, as far as I know, have all failed. Right. I'm not aware of any company which, of those that started doing that, that's still doing that. So will, will Jack Mueller succeed? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. The, the concern is that it seems like El Salvador is now part of this, you know, holding the, the bags of Bitcoin that either profits from criminal activity or fails because it's a Ponzi. And both, both are unfortunate outcomes. Well, Bukele has 95% uh, approval, that's good, but it also apparently has the approval of, of the uh, drug cartels, <laughs> which is not so good. Right. <laughs> and that may causing problems. I think the IMF is very unhappy with the movement, so it may punish the, him for just for, for that Bitcoin thing. 
Um, and uh, the U.S. may also not be happy about that. Because they're, they're going off the dollar there. The last thing I wanted to, to touch on is the, your, your opinion on Tether. Because what makes this Ponzi scheme more complicated and what I've talked on this, sh- this show with Bennett Tomlin and uh, soon uh, there will be a Caspiancy release or it's already been released uh, for people listening to this. Tether obfuscates the nature of the Ponzi by essentially injecting money into the system that may or may not be backed. It looks like it's likely not backed by real new money entering the system therefore inflating the paper value of everyone's holdings. Um, what, do, um, what, what has been your view of Tether in the last few months? Well, I think that the basic problem with Tether, which people keep overlooking, is that their terms of service and makes it very clear that once you have bought Tether, the company doesn't, whether directly from them or from anyone else, the company has no obligation uh, to convert those tethers back into dollars. If the company owners decided to take to pocket all the money that people have spent buying tethers and pay, I mean, uh, divide them as a dividend, there would be not. I don't think that there is anything illegal that that uh, can be done about that. That's perfect. That would be perfectly uh, in accordance with their terms of service. Uh, terms, terms of, of service. service, because they don't have any uh, legal obligation to return money to anyone. Uh, so uh, people have made a big fuss about their uh, reserves. Well, being at least they having at least seventy five percent only of the reserves that they claimed to have at some point in the past. And now it's not clear how many reserves they do have. But I think that's totally pointless. They, they, they could have 100% reserves. So it would be the same thing as they, they had 0% because they don't have any obligation to use those reserves to even to support the uh, value of Tether. Right. right. So that's right. one thing. And um, one, one thing that I found puzzling is that uh, USDC uh, Circle, the company that issues USDC, has suddenly started behaving very much like Tether. Um, right. So <laughs> I wonder what's going on with the Circle. Uh, that, that's <laughs> I'm much more curious to know about that and about Tether, which I think that we already know pretty much what's going on with it. Right. With with Circle, at least there's this illusion that they're trying to play within the laws of the United States. Yeah. But somehow they printed $20 billion almost overnight. Yeah, and uh, that's very um, that's very dangerous because, say, Tether doesn't cannot make much damage in the United States because of the restrictions that they have, but and the restriction on banking that they have. But Circle has access to banking and has access to New York State uh, customers. So if they start behaving like Tether, <laughs> uh, that's uh, that's. Uh, <laughs> Going back to, 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 to the zero marker in, 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 the, in the legal protection, I mean, all the legal efforts that the New York state, for instance, has put into stopping Tether in the state, uh, just circumvented. So, yeah, start again. You, you made a point that uh, Bitcoin is, is, I guess, now the largest, or, or the cryptocurrency market is the largest Ponzi scheme uh, in history. The way that you've measured this is that you you observe money leaving the system um, for, for, through miners, for example, and we we know this number. We can take every block that's been mined 
We can multiply it by the roughly the current price. And just in the month of May, at least four billion U.S. dollars has left in the form of Bitcoin and Ethereum mining, and that's in one month. Um, obviously, as the price gets higher, this cost gets higher. But if we look back at the last many many years, we're we're well over the fifty or sixty billion dollars of net money into, out of the system. And so, how do you reflect on, on on this? I mean, does does it feel like a lot of uh, the the skeptics have 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 failed, or is it the government that has failed in protecting so many people from such a huge loss? Um, well, I mean, first I think that my estimate for how much the people have lost, I mean, which is people who buy Bitcoin, call them investors, people who have ever bought Bitcoin anyway, for any reason, and uh, you take how much money they have paid to buy Bitcoins, and minus how much money they got by selling the Bitcoin. So my estimate for that difference so far is $15 billion. Um, because, I mean, you said that, well, there is this big uh, $4 billion uh, just in the past month. But if you look at uh, the graph of the price, um, uh, in linear scale, I mean, uh, until, sorry, I have a dog at the neighbor who's barking. Where was I? <laughs> Basically, it was $10,000 per Bitcoin for um, maybe to, from 200, 2018 to, to the last year. And that's about half of the total uh, revenue that miners got. Before that, the price was so low that you can ignore. And then you have this big peak that went up to $64,000. And in that short interval, there is another the half of the, the other half of what the, the investors lost. And my estimate by by eyeballing the charts and doing back and develop computations is fifteen billion dollars. Maybe I'm off. Maybe it's more. The the, the problem with this number fifteen billion is that it only accounts for miners. Is, is that correct? Yes, that's the that's the only thing that um, that you can be certain about. There, then there is other losses. For instance, exchanges. They can right. do all dirty tricks and they, they take lots of money from miners, from the people who trade there, maybe even more than $15 billion. But they take it only from the day traders, uh, people who are trading all the time there. I mean, if you just buy Bitcoin once, then you're not uh, losing money to exchange. And then there is Tether, uh, which probably the owners, I mean, uh, the way I see it, the owners just pocket everything that they, uh, every uh, tether, uh, every one of those $60 billion that they spent is either money that they profited that they got, either in the form of USD or in the form of cryptocurrencies that they can sell eventually for USD. Uh, when they do that, I mean, they are taking money out. But I don't know how to estimate how much of that is. So it may be anything between zero and $60 billion. So it may be the, the biggest Ponzi scheme in history already. Right. If it is only 15 billion, that puts it second place after Madoff, because I think the, that number for Madoff was uh, 19 billion. The market cap of Madoff uh, at the, just before the crash was 60 billion. But like Bitcoin, I mean, the market cap is not how much people have invested in it. Uh, it's what they think they have. Um, right. 
Uh, uh, Bitcoin, I think it is now $600 billion, the market cap, something like that. Uh, but uh, that's not money that they invested. That's money that they think they have. Right. On paper. What they actually invested, uh, money that they spent minus money that they got back, is probably less than $20 billion. I, my guess, my estimate is $15 billion, and not counting tethered. Not counting Tether, because all stablecoins combined are 110 billion currently, or 105 billion, which means that allegedly 105 billion dollars have entered the space and remain in the space. So um, this number 15 billion, uh, it seems rather conservative, Def- definitely quite conservative in terms of what I what I would guess. Okay, you are talking about the same computation than for other coins. Uh, yeah, so, so maybe maybe it's because I'm talking about the entire space broadly because Bitcoin is now b- about half the space. Um, but al- also, I'm just observing like the stable coins should reflect money coming in. So if someone wants to bring money in, US uh, USDC is given to them. So you're counting Tether, basically. Yeah, exactly. And so obviously, it is not my opinion that Tether has actually witnessed $63 billion of cash inflow. It could have been 10% of that. But even so, $15 billion in total coming into the space and being lost seems very conservative for a space that already has $110 billion of stablecoins, and that doesn't account for all the money that's coming in. Uh, a lot of money coming in doesn't touch stablecoins. It's just directly uh, transferred in. Um, we're, we're, a little, we're over our time here, and I, I can't thank you enough for making the time to, to talk. In, in, in the absolute last thing, um, I, I just wanted to ask you, what would you tell some young person, maybe studying at university, maybe studying at your university, who is thinking to themselves, this is the money of the future. This is so exciting, new technology. I don't know exactly how it works, but I'm thinking about investing and I'm thinking about putting money into it. What would you tell, you know, a student that's going to your computer science uh, class? What would you tell them? I would tell them first those two things. I mean, that um, Bitcoin is a Ponzi scheme. I explained to them why. Uh, that uh, because there that's no uh, source of revenue for investors except the, themselves uh, and the drain of money. That it is a PayPal of crime and that it doesn't have any um, of the um, computer science innovation that uh, the promoters claim that it has. Uh, that they should not believe what Bitcoiners say about that, about it, because they have a, a very strong incentive to uh, magnify any uh, possible con- con- hypothetical uh, advantages and uh, omit completely all the uh, fatal flaws. Okay. Well, uh, we'll we'll hopefully we can take we can all take that to heart and think twice about about whether we should invest or whether this is an, this even is investing when we talk about buying something like cryptocurrency. Um, I can't thank you enough. Thank you again, uh, Professor Stolfi, for, for, for taking the time to, to talk to me. And I know that um, you're a fan favorite, like for sure. Uh, you, uh, I think on the, in the 2016 podcast, you, uh, Chris DeRose and John Seth called you the, the butt coiner of all butt coiners. You know, the ultimate, <laughs> the ultimate uh, troll. And I think, I think you're a, you're a hilarious uh, addition to the space. Um, I, uh, I I might read your your how yeah, how I plan to make money joke uh, later because I I still to this day I find it to be one of the the funniest 
uh, jokes I've ever read uh, about I- explaining Bitcoin. Uh, the first time I heard it, I probably laughed for like 10 minutes. I, I really lost it. Um, so I might have to read it for the introduction. Okay. Thank you very much uh, for the uh, opportunity to talk to, to, to people. I mean, I think it was a very pleasant um, podcast, uh, very pleasant interview, a very pleasant exchange. Uh, not, uh, I mean, I've been some, I've, I've done some that were much worse, went much worse than them. Unfortunately, being a fan of yours, I had to listen to those podcasts and hearing people <laughs> call you an idiot is really hard because, <laughs> because I think to myself, uh, well, if, 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 if you don't understand, uh, I don't think anyone understands. Uh, once again, thank you very much. And um, hopefully in the future, you'll, you'll come on and, and, and talk about the latest uh, thing that, uh, you know, Elon Musk or whoever is, is, is shilling and that all, your, uh, all the young people are, are buying into. So thank you again. Thank you.